Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are you scared to move? The last time you got off the couch, did it really hurt? When you went for that long walk down the street, did it get to a point where you thought to yourself, this just isn't worth it anymore? Now, we know that exercise and physical activity are incredibly important, not only for those with osteoarthritis, but for everybody in the community. But unfortunately, negative beliefs about pain and the body, particularly your joints, might hinder movement. Do you have osteoarthritis? Are you afraid to move or have you been told not to? On this week's episode, we're joined by Dr. JP Canero to discuss beliefs about movements and their impacts and how you can become more confident with movement. Hello, JP, and welcome to the show. Oh, hi, David. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, and this is an incredibly important topic, and I think it's something hopefully the listeners will gain a lot from. But before we really get into the main content of the day, really in an effort both for me and for everybody out there to get to know you a little bit better, can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like? Sure. So I'm originally from Brazil, from the southern region of Brazil. I lived there until I was 25 years old. I did my undergraduate I started doing teaching soon after I finished my undergraduate, along with my master's degree. And I was very fortunate to have lecturers. There were clinicians and researchers, and I always gravitated towards them because they seemed to bring this relevance to what they're teaching. So I finished my degree, and one of the things that we didn't have was the biomechanics aspect in physio. So I did a master's in biomechanics in human movement and biomechanics of the knee specifically. And it's far removed from how I see the body these days, but it was very informative and it was a great research experience. And when I finished that, I felt like I wasn't a great clinician and Australia was booming in terms of research around pain and around spinal pain. And that drove me to come to Australia and do a master's 
uh, I had a, a tiny barrier, which was I couldn't speak English when I came. And so I came a year before the master's with a colleague of mine. And we, you know, did lots of different jobs and did some English, passed the test, entered the master's. And that was a, a, was a complete change in my perception of physiotherapy. And what turned to be initially a two-year trip, it's now I've been here for almost 18 years. Wonderful. Uh, I, yeah, I fell in love with the place. I had lots of opportunities. And since I finished the master's, I've been basically working three days in the clinic, seeing patients, and two days a week. I have a position at the university as a researcher, uh, and I'm part of a larger group in which I can continue to work with the people that mentored me since I arrived here. So I feel very fortunate and supported in, in that direction. And I think that clinician and researcher role, and I do some teaching as well, keeps me on my toes. Yeah, it's a, it's a great balance and it's a wonderful perspective that I think people who are more engaged in research potentially don't get through that lack of interaction with the people who have that lived experience, who who live and breathe the experience of the disease. Now, JP, when, when you're not at work, what do you like to do? I like to spend time with my family. I'm, I'm married and I've got two little boys, one is six and one is two-year-old. And uh, we often go on bike rides and go to the beach. So that's probably one of the biggest things uh, for us. And I like exercising. So that's my, my go-to thing to do. Wonderful. And yeah, I mean, having little kids is a great way to, uh, to get outside, particularly in a beautiful climate like Perth. Uh, what sort of activities do you personally like to do? Uh, I practice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Ah, so don't and... with you. <laughs> no, it's it's actually the it's the body mind connection. It's probably the it's, it's the practice that gets my body and my mind connected. It's very intellectual, although it doesn't look like it. Uh, so that's my my go to exercise because I don't play soccer at all. <laughs> that's the reason why I got kicked out of Brazil. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. No, there's a lot of Brazilians in Australia who do the jiu-jitsu, and including a couple in our research group. And uh, yeah. they were trying to they were trying to teach me at one point in time, but I guess I'm just not highly attuned to, to be able to do those sorts of things. <laughs> you might be surprised, David. <laughs> uh, JP, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what words would you choose? So the first one that comes to mind is family. I think that's the moral compass that drives all the decisions in our family. Both my wife and I, she's Brazilian as well. We're very connected to our families and we're fortunate to have them close to us. The second would be curiosity and curiosity in the sense of learning for myself, but also I'm quite curious about people's journeys and trajectories. And that helps me with patients because uh, I'm very interested in their stories. I think the third word would be growth. And, and that goes for um, my own personal growth. And in general, I think having a, a growth mindset can really help humans to develop. I'm not saying that I master it, but it's something that I strive towards. Uh, and with growth, it comes this desire to, you know, there's ambition, there's a desire to do better. And determination is probably the fourth word that I would, um, that it's close to my heart. Because in this path to developing and growing, I am quite determined at achieving the things that I, that I want. Uh, and so I'm quite goal-driven in that sense. And the fifth word is probably what enables a lot of that to happen is mentorship. And as I mentioned before, I had lecturers that I looked up to 
And since I arrived in Australia, uh, I've had a lot of support and people that I still work closely with, such as, you know, Peter O'Sullivan, Professor Ann Smith and Helen Slater, who were here when I arrived and they support me and they help people around them to grow. And that mentorship is something that we bring into the clinic to other clinicians that we work with. And I think that's the way I approach my care with patients. Uh, it's almost like a mentorship journey. Yeah, look, they're um, wonderful qualities. And I think if you live them, you know, you're doing an amazing, amazing job. And as you say, the people who are around you that have presumably supported you through that journey, whether that be your family, Pete, Helen, or Anne, you know, they're wonderful people. Um, and so, you know, you're incredibly fortunate. And it sounds like the, the models that they provided for you in your life, you're, you're emulating very well. So kudos to you and kudos to them. Thank you. Yeah, I feel yeah. very privileged. Yeah. And I guess the other comment I just wanted to make there is that, you know, those qualities of particularly curiosity, growth, dissemination, a wonderful, I guess, both qualities, but also aspirations in many ways that continue mm. to drive and presumably motivate you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. what uh, keeps me moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Now we could probably talk about that all day, but we're not going to because <laughs> the content that we're going to get onto is so, so important. But I just want to start, you know, just by bringing us back and just framing why we're talking about this. You know, mm -hmm. Now, you're a clinician, I'm a clinician, and you know, we regularly hear people come into the clinic using both terms that are inaccurate, but also fears and perceptions that are probably myths. Can you just tell me a little bit about some of them as they relate to knee osteoarthritis? And if you can potentially where those myths, misconceptions, and inaccurate terms might be coming from? Sure. So I think one of the key underlying myths that people tend to associate with is this idea that pain equates to structural damage in the body. You know, there's this analogies that patients use where they relate their body to a, uh, to a machine that is kind of breaking down and broken parts need to be replaced and fixed. And I think traditionally, uh, I can speak for physiotherapy. We trained ourselves to help people fix problems. So I think it comes from what we offer patients, but also a strong myth in society that if you have a pain problem, it means that something that went wrong in your body structure. And along with that, it comes the idea that when you're in pain, movement is dangerous. And movement and loading a body part is dangerous. And if you use it more, it means that you would tear it more or wear it more. And that can be quite a, a debilitating belief because uh, it makes sense in a way if you have a very uh, structural orientation of how the body works. And it kind of induces a sense of fragility in the body. So if you believe, for instance, someone with neoarthritis, a common thing that they hear from other clinicians, uh, or even if they read on Google, for instance, is that they have bone on bone. So there's this perception that the cartilage is gone, I have no shock absorption, and now I have to really preserve what is left. And in this preservation, for someone that is 65 years old, it may be a matter of changing a little bit of their activities. But we see people that are 47, 48, and they have this bone-on-bone -bone joint, but they are not ready yet to get a new replacement. So they've been told that they just need to sit and wait and they may be waiting for another 15 years. And they are waiting and preserving this joint that is deteriorating on a day-to-day. -day. So really, it's disempower the patient 
from any possibility of managing themselves. So they, they are probably the key beliefs that we hear. And where do they come from? I think they come from, from a narrative that has been in society for such a long time of our understanding of pain as an alarm system or telling us that something is wrong in the body. And that's absolutely true for a situation of trauma or if you're touching a hot plate. But when pain persists for a long period of time, that is not always the, the case or it's not the only cause of the problem. And I think as clinicians, I remember being trained as a physio and having this really biomedical narrative of becoming very good at diagnosing patients where you could understand a cluster of symptoms and a cluster of behaviors that would fall into a label and that label will give you direction as to how to treat someone. And I must admit, if that was the case, it would be very easy to deal with a lot of situations, but I probably wouldn't be doing my profession to this day because that wouldn't be as interesting as it is today. And today we see someone that comes in with, you know, they say they have neoarthritis, and that to me only means that they have a problem that is persistent, that the target of the body area is their knee, and they are facing some level of disability. Now, tell me your story of living with this problem. And that's where my interest goes. Yeah, and that's, I think, a really key point to follow on from is that how do you get that message coming from the patients? Is it you making yourself available and open? Is it you taking the time to listen? Is it you asking the right questions? What is it, you know, about what you do and, you know, what Pete and Helen and others in your in your practice do that motivates people who come in to tell that story so you can gain greater sort of psychosocial insights as to what's going on? Mm. So it's a great question, David. And, and I think that word of curiosity that I used before, is it's key in this sense. So um, I learned this with Pete, and that's the way that I've always seen him approaching patients, and that's what I use. Uh, I just saw a patient that I've never seen before, just before we started this. And my opening question was, you know, I, hear, I see here in the forums that you've been having headaches for a long time. Can you tell me your story? And for some patients, that they are taken aback for that question because they, they don't understand where you want to go. But they start often telling you key elements of their story. You know, some beliefs that come up such as, you know, I was diagnosed with scoliosis when I was, when I was 13. So there's clearly that element in the story. Or my kneecap used to dislocate when I was little. And so there's kind of this, this hook in the story. And then... You're using what you said, you know, becoming available to listen to that story and how that impacts on the patient. I think that there's some research, you know, Stephen Linton uh, has pr produced some research around this open, reflective communication style that facilitates disclosure and helps build therapeutic alliance or helps build this relationship between patient and clinician. And there's been studies looking at asking patients, what would you like to get out of a clinical encounter? And they often you know, when they say they want a diagnosis, they don't mean a label. A diagnosis for them means I want to understand what it is. I want to plan to manage it. And I want to be able to take care of myself. And I want to feel heard and understood. And I think once patients can see that you're genuinely interested in their story and how it influences them beyond the diagnosis, they start disclosing that information. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully that's a great example, both for clinicians who are out there listening, but also for patients trying to find someone 
who will help them through the journey that we're going to be talking through this afternoon to mm. try to find the characteristics of the health professionals who might be able to help them through that. Now, JP, you started touching upon this. And I guess as we move away from this biomedical model where structure is the problem and there are other factors that are causing this, uh, at least the presentation as far as pain and function is concerned, why do people present with pain? Is it just about structure or are there other things that are driving this process? I think there is quite overwhelming evidence today to demonstrate that pain goes beyond the physical element. And just to make a, a very clear point, it's not to say that the structure is not involved in a pain presentation, but there are other elements that can influence how the experience of pain is felt by the patient. So if we take, for instance, knee osteoarthritis, some of the things that we know, we know that your beliefs about your body and about the condition can affect how you behave with that body part. So if my understanding is that I have a bone-on-bone -bone joint, but there's no cartilage, the cartilage doesn't grow, and the way of fixing it is a knee replacement, I will behave in a way to preserve that joint. And that may be avoiding activities or guarding my body or doing things differently. So that's a physical element that is driven by the way I understand the problem. Then we know that emotions can affect how your body responds. So if you are in a context of stress or if you're frightened of using a body part, that can affect your behavior, but also alters your chemistry. And it can influence pain perception and sensitivity. We know that lifestyle, what you eat, your behaviors in terms of exercise, how much exercise you do, how little exercise you do, your social demands, uh, your context at home, your context at work, all these factors, they interplay to affect the chemistry in your body. So when we're talking to patients about non-physical factors, we have to be careful how we provide that information because often patients can say, look, the pain is in my knee. It's not in my head. I'm not making this up. And it, it's kind of bringing back to the body and saying, look, when you put all of these factors together and these factors will come from the patient's story. So not everyone will have all those elements. When you put all of those together, they interplay and they change how your nervous system responds to, to this context that you live in. And those changes are chemical. And once you change the chemistry in your body, you can sensitize different structures in your body. And your knee has structural changes that can become more susceptible to those chemical changes. So it's within the biology of the biopsychosocial model but it's translating to patients, how can something like stress or my emotions or my beliefs affect my knee problem? And often uh, for some patients, what is helpful, and that's the way I understand pain. If we imagine we have a, like a threshold for our health, let's not think about pain, let's just think about health. And underneath this threshold, we have the context in our life. We have all the biological, psychological, social factors that are part of our life. And they will have different dominance over time. So at times, I'll be doing lots of physical work. At times, I'll be having a lot of social stressors. At times, I'll be, you know, my mood will be low. So they vary under this threshold. And we continue living our lives with no problems. But at times, we will be living so close to the threshold that something tips us over the edge. And once you tip over the edge, something happens with our health. It's an expression of our health. And that expression could be a skin condition. It could be a heart problem. It could be an autoimmune disease. It could be pain. 
So if we look at pain as an expression of our nervous system, once we reach the threshold, because of the interplay of those factors, it automatically demands an approach that is not only linked to the structure. So if we think someone that starts presenting signs of a cardiac problem and they go and they see a, a cardiologist, not every patient will get a new heart, right? They don't get a heart replacement. They may need surgery or they need plan to prevent that surgery or they need a plan to, to manage their condition. And often the plan that the cardiologist will give is a whole person plan. They talk about diet, they talk about stress, they talk about lifestyle, they talk about exercise and medication. And in that story, there is the biology of the heart. Now, when it comes to pain, we ignore all of that and we stick just to the structure. So bringing those kind of analogies and often bringing that from the patient's story. So if the patient has diabetes, you say, how do you manage that? How do you understand it? And creating that analogy and, and making them understand that pain is not, is not dissimilar, uh, then it, it forces the patient to understand that they need a more holistic approach that is multifactorial. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful analogy, as you said, and I think hopefully a great example, both for consumers who are out there, but also health professionals, about some of the complex interplay here between a range of factors that contributes to the lived experience of disease. And, you know, I think, as you say, oftentimes, both as clinicians, but also as patients who are quite reserved about describing what's going on in their life or their psychosocial ailments, mm. and they oftentimes lay important factors to the side, whether it be their you know, their mood, the the demand mm -hmm. on their joint from an occupational perspective, the, you know, the participation or lack thereof in, in a social sense in the community that plays such an incredible role in their experience. And so it's really important just to really reemphasize what JP's saying there about digging in, identifying what's going on, and trying to, as best you can, address those inciting factors over and above what could be happening locally in the joint. Now, JP, one of the key elements that I really want to get into, because, you know, I've heard you describe this before, and I think you did it incredibly eloquently, is that, you know, a lot of people who come along with osteoarthritis may have a history of being less active, and they've been mm -hmm. not engaged in programs that are supportive of, about their joint health and find that when they do start to move, it's hurt, and they have those preconceptions in their mind that their joint is, is vulnerable or susceptible to further damage. How do you increase confidence amongst people who have osteoarthritis and get them, I guess, to a point where they're more comfortable about moving? Yeah. So that's a great question and a great challenge in the clinic. Uh, I think uh, one of the key things for someone to build confidence is to understand what they're dealing with. So to get their understanding and reframe that understanding and use the word joint health, I think. Patients often come in with the idea of disease. They just think of the bits of the knee that don't work anymore. And you go, right, what about the bits that work? We need to keep them healthy. So having that understanding is one aspect. The other aspect is it's a combination of having knowledge, but having an experience that promotes active learning about how they use their body. And that experience is guided by a clinician that will listen to your story that will look at how you use your body when you're trying to do the activities that are provocative or you're frightened of uh, and help you modulate how you use your body and try to understand why you're using your body in that way. 
So if you have a, a felt experience of using your body in a way that feels less threatening, potentially less painful, and you have an understanding that in doing so, you can improve the health of your joint and your overall health, that starts giving people an ability to build some confidence in their body. And if we, if we take to the extreme of someone that develops fear, for instance, and we look at the fear literature, and that's where my research background comes from. I did a PhD looking at people with chronic back pain and high levels of fear. But when you look at the literature, you have a fear memory that, that is really strong. Every time you use it, it, you know, it, it becomes painful, it becomes less functional, and it's hard. So your memories of safety are, are close to none. So our job is to help patients to build those safety memories and give them an understanding or reconceptualizing that if they're initiating an exercise program again, it is normal to have an increase in discomfort. But that discomfort does not mean that you're causing more structural damage to the joint. It means that the joint is responding to that new stimulus that you're giving. Now, the key is not to just push through the pain. That's not the message here. The message is, okay, I did an exercise today. It got a little bit sore. It settled afterwards. And the next day, I could go on about my life just as I did on the day before. That means that pain, it was just a response. And you continue with that exercise and you gradually increase it. And the way you monitor it is, is this pain building up to a point that is not tolerable or acceptable, or is it interfering my day-to-day -day life after I finish the exercise? If the answer is no, it means that we'll keep going. And there is some data to demonstrate, you know, people that are on a wait list for knee replacements. And they said, look, you're waiting for a knee replacement. Why don't we give this joint a last dance and do some exercise for a, for a number of weeks? And they did that. And a good percentage of that group end up pushing away the surgery for another couple of years or not even having the surgery. Because as they experience that they could use their body safely, the idea of resuming their active lifestyle was more entertaining the idea of having surgery and going through the potential risk of having it. If we, if we build that experience in the clinic, it's then giving the patient the confidence to implement that in their daily life. And that's one of the things that I, at the end of a session, I'll always ask a patient, what were the key messages you took away from today? Because I want to, to see if we're speaking the same language. And if they tell me that they just got exercises, I use that opportunity to say, look, these exercises, we use them as a mechanism to build a new habit into your body, to build this safe memory experience. What I want you to do is to work on your habits. So we, we often give people habit-changing strategies, and that's the most important thing, because they may do an exercise, you know, two sets of 10, but continue with their bad habits or unhelpful habits, and that can have a, a detrimental effect. But if they are implementing those principal, principles in their daily life, they start experimenting. And you can see patients coming back and saying, Look, I was walking uphill the other day and I tried doing that, you know, relaxing my knees and pushing more through my feet and regulating my breathing. And I, I felt fine. Do you think I'll be able to go for a quick jog? So you can see that their fear is kind of moving, like the barrier is moving. So that to me, it just shows that they're experimenting and building confidence. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a tremendous description. And I think from the perspective of the people who are listening, hopefully superbly helpful. Just to expand on that a little bit further, 
What are the key ingredients you think in the relationship between the consumer, the patient, and the health professional that facilitates promoting confidence? Mm-hmm. Is it you know their trust and belief in the person that they're talking to? Is it the fact that that clinician's listened to them? Is it identifying the issues that might be introducing that fear? Or is it the prolonged relationship over a period of time that creates ongoing confidence? What do you think are the key ingredients there that people might be able to emulate? I think you touched on most of the ingredients. Uh, And I think the combination of ingredients will vary depending on the personalities that are interacting in that session. And I say that because some people can make significant changes within the session and some people take longer time to make those changes. But I think in that clinical encounter, it has to be an encounter where the patient comes to a place, they feel safe to disclose their fears, their concerns, and their understanding of the problem. And they are taking seriously when they say that they tried exercising and it always hurt them. Because we often say, oh, you know, if you didn't do the exercise the way that I do. Uh, so we have to listen to the patient and say, so what you're telling me is that you're really sensitive. You went to Hydra and you're sore for three days afterwards. So it's kind of meeting the patient where they are. So if the patient feels understood and they go, this guy listened to me, he did a comprehensive assessment, he made me part of this communication, he clarified my questions, and he asked me to help him design a plan for myself, he builds a trusting relationship. And also not to promise people that this is the be-all and end-all. It's more around saying, look, this is a plan that makes sense with your story. What do you think? And often at the end of a consult, and I'm, and I'm kind of here describing what I do, but I'm kind of representing a group of people that work with this approach that are around the world. And for the listeners, I want you to put yourself in your shoes in a clinical in- encounter where you're going, okay, this is what I should be getting when I see a, a physio, for instance. And so if you did your examination, you listen to the story, then you sit together with the physio and say, look, this is the cycle in which you, your life is at the moment. You're not doing all these activities. You're in pain. You don't have much function. These are your goals. And today we saw that all these factors that play a role, what do you think we can do to affect these factors? What does your life and social context allows you to do that we can work on these modifiable factors? Because, uh, you know, it's a difference if I speak to someone that is carrying a bit of weight, doesn't exercise, but they live in an industrial zone surrounded by McDonald's and they care for a, for a disabled child versus talking to a 39-year-old living by the beach, single, that has time to and, and access to exercise and good health, you know, healthy diet. So understanding the context, I can't change where they live. But I can take that in consideration and saying, look, you finding a gym is not for you. You need a home exercise program. And, you know, you need support in terms of your diet. And the 39-year-old, he might just need to get his bum off the couch and enjoy the shore and look for the healthy food and et cetera. So that experience where the patient feels that the physio not only understands their need, but understands who they are, how they learn, what are the things surrounding their context, and what are the demands and barriers of their life? Yeah, yeah, tremendous examples. And I think in the interest of teasing those out a little bit more, I might get you to, to relay a couple more explanations from some wonderful cases you put together in a narrative 
or the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and we'll include a link to that and some additional resources that JP's put together, including an infographic in the show notes. I'm going to do this in the reverse direction, starting with the third case that you included in that narrative. Specifically, this is a, a sedentary retiree who presents with severe pain, quite marked structural change on their x-ray and general deconditioning, a lot of comorbidities, including depression, sleep apnea, obesity, and quite negative beliefs about their exercise. So they were quite worried about the things you were saying before that, the, you know, the knees mm -hmm. bone on bone and they, they couldn't exercise. So what would you explain to that person and, and what types of treatment do you think would be your focus for that particular person? So I think that that gentleman, he would be a person that has all these comorbidities, right? So his health is affected in many ways. So if we look at his health and not his knee away, uh, we need to find a way that he becomes more active because we know that if he's more active, we can push his body towards a uh, anti-inflammatory environment that can help with all of those ailments that he has. In terms of his knee, we need to find a window as to how much exercise can he do that doesn't make his knee become a barrier for him to being active. And, and just on that, it, one of the common things that I hear from patients is that they, they just do hydro because they've been told hydro is the only way of taking the load off the knee. And hydro is wonderful for someone that has a really inflamed and irritated joint that can't tolerate much exercise at all. But for other people, it's not enough, especially if their demands are walking or going up and down stairs. So maybe someone may start with hydro, but they very quickly have to start doing weight-bearing exercises to meet the demands of their life. So for him, was was about having an understanding similar to what I described before about pain being an expression of his health, similar to all these other factors. The fact that he had significant structural changes, it means that that joint is very susceptible to any inflammatory changes in his body. And rightly or wrongly, with someone like that, probably telling them that we are developing a management plan that moves them from a pro-inflammatory state to an anti-inflammatory state. And that encompasses all these factors that are lifestyle and activity changes to help modify the chemistry in his body. So that's kind of the overall approach with someone like him. Does he need quadriceps exercises to strengthen his thigh muscles? Yeah, he, he needs that. But we'll provide that once he is able to tolerate some form of load and he understands that the active approach is promoting overall health for him. Because one of the barriers for someone like him is that he left the cardiologist consult being told that he needs to exercise at least 150 minutes a week. And then he comes to the physio and say, well, it's a great advice, but I can't walk down the road. How can I exercise 150 minutes a week? So it's kind of meeting the demands of his overall health and saying, look, the knee cannot be a barrier. So we can't do something that is constantly provocative for him. So for him, kind of finding a way where we could load his leg and gradually increase his ability to tolerate load without provoking a flare-up, that was enough to get him on board and get him moving in that more active lifestyle. And for someone like him, weight loss had been demonstrated or had been touched upon by several other clinicians. So I didn't have to touch on that. He brought that up. But he said that for him, the only way of losing weight was exercising because his diet was okay. 
So that's where people get really stuck. Yeah, it's a, it's a great explanation. And just to expand on a couple of points you brought in there, particularly around pain with activity. So when you first see them, what do you say is going to happen as far as their joints concerned and the experience that they may get when they do start to move, when they're otherwise unaccustomed to it in terms of what type of pain should they expect? What type of pain is wholeheartedly acceptable and just suggests they're doing work versus mm. pain that they should be concerned about? Yeah, so I think it depends on how they respond to what we do in the session. So if we can make significant changes on how they use their body with considerable change in pain or with no change in pain, it's the same pain that they have, but they are moving in a more natural way. They're not guarded and enables a more natural movement for them. Uh, that's, I'll be telling that patient, I'll say, look, if we are, if we can do these, perform these activities, the level of discomfort that you're feeling, it shouldn't go beyond what is acceptable to you. So I make very clear that is not a push through pain principle. It's a principle where you're doing an activity, it gets a bit sore, but it settles once you stop. And it cannot interfere with your daily activities. So they are kind of the measurement as to what is good pain in a way. And oftentimes when we, we take a very behavioral approach in the clinic. So we get patients to do the very things that they have trouble with. And when they are doing that, I'm not asking them all the time, you know, how much pain you have, or uh, I asked about their experience and they might say, oh, you know, I can't do this. You know, they're protecting the leg. So let's say they're getting up from the chair and they're taking the weight off their leg. They're holding their breath. They're guarding. And I said, right. So what do you notice in your body? Are oh, you noticing all these things? Great. So how about we change that? If I met you six months ago, would you be getting up from the chair like this? Oh, no, I used to just spring out of the chair. Okay, so can we try to tap into that memory? So can you relax your body? Can you feel the weight in your feet? And now can you engage your legs and get up? And they do it and go, oh, yeah, it's still painful. Okay. Right, so you're doing something that is more close to what you normally do, but the same level of discomfort. What do you think that means? So it's not a telling them what to do, it's a, it's a dance <laughs> where you're kind of trying to extract their understanding. And often patients will say, right, so what you're telling me is that it's safe for me to do this. Going, yeah, that's exactly right. But what happens if tomorrow I wake up and my knee is really sore? I'm going, well, that would be something that we'll learn because it's telling us that what you did here today is beyond your capacity and we need to dial, dial down. But I want to hear from you today, tomorrow, I want an email from you telling me how you responded. So it's creating that, and that's what I meant before about promising, uh, is to say, look, this is a journey and it's not, it's not like this. It's often like this. <laughs> uh, so what, J what so JP is doing with his hand is he's got an up upward trajectory <laughs> versus, versus, a, versus a very uh, lumpy trajectory. Yeah, yes, yeah. with so ups and downs. Yeah, it's very, very individual. Yeah, and obviously it has to be tailored according to how they respond to what you're saying. Now, JP, I haven't managed time particularly well, and we could probably talk about this all day, and we'll probably have to get you back at some point to expand on some of these concepts. Are there any other key messages you want to get across today? Yes, I guess the, the, the message for the patient is, you know, what do you expect when you see a clinician that is going to help you? And I think the, the big thing is, our brain in society is trained to go and see someone to help us fix a problem. 
So we often go to see a physio to get something fixed. So it's a very uh, passive process. And for something like osteoarthritis, where you need to actively manage this, you need to find yourself someone that can be a guide or a coach that understands your problem, gives you principles, sends you out to road test these principles, receives the feedback, upgrades your program, graduates it, sends you out to road test it again. So it's an approach where both of you are working, but at the end of this story, they are your goals. So they're driven by what you want to achieve. And another point that is really important here is that often patients come to physio and they say, you know, you really don't want me to have surgery because for you, that's like a failure of, of rehab. And it's not. And for some patients, I make that really clear. Neo A, if you have a replacement, it can really transform your life, right? For hip OA, same story. Uh, however, what we know is that you need to go past these stages because many people don't need to, to get the knee replacement because there are risks associated with it. Now, if you've gone through this and you're feeling better within yourself and you're going okay, but your knee is still a problem and you still can't reach your goals, then having the knee replacement is not a failure of the conservative rehab. It's a natural process. But you'll you get there in a much better position. So it's important that people don't think that we're just defending uh, or going against surgery, but it's a route that patients should be presented with before they get to the end stage. Yeah, and it's it's a really important point to stress is that the vast majority of people who have knee osteoarthritis or hip osteoarthritis for that matter never need a joint replacement. And unfortunately, that's oftentimes all that they're offered. And it is an appropriate alternative for some people who have gone through the progression that JP has been describing today. Now, JP, we'll include a link to the notes that you sent through, including the infographic and the other pieces that you've got there and, and the narrative. Just in closing, two questions. My favorite question, why do you do what you do? I'm very privileged, right? You and I are very privileged. We have education, we have knowledge, we've been mentored, and I have this sense of uh, a community responsibility. I feel like now with experience, a lot of these things that come very easy to us to understand, and patients are really struggling with that. So I, I don't, I'm not a researcher that makes uh, you know, significant changes in the world, but I feel like I'm a small part, but I'm a part of this tide that is changing in the, the way we understand pain in our body. And that is a really good feeling. Oh, look, you're playing a crucial role. Don't underestimate the incredible value that you bring. But just in closing, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you want to give for people who have osteoarthritis? I think it's to look for a coach. Look for someone that can listen to you, will help you understand your problem and will give you tools rather than just, you know, trying to fix you. I think that's the key thing. And moving forward is, is safe, it's necessary, and it has to be towards your goals. Yeah, that's a great way to close and a great summation of, you know, the wonderful complex presentation that you've spoken about today, JP. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us. We could have talked all day, um, but we'll have to get you back at some point to do it again. Thank you so much. I would love to. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was wonderful having a chance to chat to JP. And I think the messages he conveyed are incredibly important for everybody out there who has osteoarthritis. The beliefs some people have about movements, the susceptibility of their joint, the myths, the misconceptions that they've been told 
about their osteoarthritis are incredibly problematic. Dispelling those myths, creating confidence in a person's joint, trying to instill those principles where you want to be active to preserve joint health, to overcome many of the other health concerns that may be present in osteoarthritis, it's not easy. But try to form a partnership with a coach that will help take you on that journey. It's so incredibly important to your general health, to your joint health, to the pain, to your function, to your participation in all aspects of your life. But try to find that person who's going to engage you in that meaningful clinician relationship so that they can take you on that incredibly important journey and you can do that together. I hope you found today's content helpful. Between now and when we next speak, do take care of yourself and if you have the chance, someone else as well. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.